Um, our next speaker is Dr. James Dunk, who works at the um, who works as a historian at the University of Sydney, where he lectures in Australian history and the history of medicine. He is also a co-joint fellow at the University of Newcastle. James's research has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine in Rethinking History in History Australia and Health and History. And his literary reviews and essays have appeared in various magazines and journals. James won the Australian History Prize for his book, Bedlam at Botany Bay. The judges admired Bedlam as a truly innovative book that offers a confronting history of madness in the early years of New South Wales, constructed from diverse sources such as governor's letters, colonial secretary's correspondence, institutional records and private letters. Combining meticulous research and compelling writing, Bedlam offers readers a strikingly original re-reading of early colonial Sydney, which is beautifully crafted and deeply sympathetic and empathetic, as well as a work of genuine literary and scholarly merit. Thanks, Kira. Thanks, everyone, for being here. When I was an undergraduate student, I had no idea of the glorious and terrible world that lay a little further down the corridor. When I was a postgraduate student, the writers that I looked to and learned from were not those old male historians who thought great thoughts and wrote in the passive, staid voice of security and self-assurance. It was those who seemed to take evidence from unlikely places and do with it something truly wonderful. Kirsten Mackenzie, who pieced together spies and conmen as they careened through the British Empire. Penny Russell drawing blood from the stone of restrictive manners and dress. Ian McCallman with his almost novelistic jaunts through alchemy and other really wonderful parts of the past. Tom Griffiths with his beautifully deep, rich vision of humanity touching everything that he turned to. And Mark McKenna, whose writing over several decades has helped to reveal this country and what it is to be a settler here in vivid and radical ways. I'm inspired by storyteller historians who are not only accurate about the world, but who move us with the weight of the truths that they find. Even the smallest things, a silk shawl, a misspelled word, a backward glance in a sepia photograph, these can carry the full weight, which is to say the glory, of a world that has been nearly stripped of magic and mystery. These enchantments are readily found in the history of madness. My book, Bedlam at Botany Bay, is about the internal chaos or disorder of mental illness as it spilled into the strange, violent, highly strung world of New South Wales during its 70 years as a penal colony. In the book, I use madness to reveal the colony in new ways, I hope, but I also use the peculiarities of this society to try and better understand some of, some of the aspects of the experience of mental illness. It's no surprise, I think, that madness ran in the veins of this place. Take a thousand people to the other side of the planet most of them felons, most of them against their will, drop them on land occupied by other nations with other tongues and other cultures in the midst of unfamiliar plants and animals, and try to build a society from the ground up, and one that's divided by crime, by religion, by wealth, one that's bruised by old and fresh injustice, and always insisting, even in the face of protracted frontier wars, that this place is empty, untouched, that the people are readily making way for these Europeans. Mayhem is also present here in a less clinical sense, I think. And there was plenty of chaos in the founding project of the colony. 
in the idea of a hybrid functioning society, one that's called upon to discipline convicts, to redeem souls, to be self-sufficient, to generate profit, to conciliate Indigenous people and to dispossess them, and to cast a pall of terror, finally, across the township, the country and the empire. Tracing the path of madness here threw into relief some of the irrational elements and the contradictions of this colony. If madness we might see, if we can see it as a breakdown of sorts in the knowledge and power of the self, here were a set of breakdowns of different kinds at different levels which reveal the contradictions between incompatible goals, between reports and rumours, and between fantasy and reality. This place upends our assumptions about the marginality of mental illness. The walls around asylums and hospitals were flimsy and porous things, often literally falling down, but always imperfectly separating those who were inside from those who were outside. Escapes were common, diagnoses were fickle, courts were malleable, and asylums were contested from within and from without. Policies of mental health and mental illness were inchoate or non-existent. And yet there was still a kind of care for those who were ill. And all of this helps erode the fixation that we have with boundaries and categories and diagnoses that tend to dominate psychiatric history and also some current discussions around mental illness. The madness of New South Wales forces us to do away with stark binaries and hard boundaries. Planned for convicts and soldiers, it had a strange configuration of legal and political power from the start. The governor enjoyed an intimidating array of formal powers, but the exercise of those powers, paradoxically, allowed plenty of room for discretion, innovation, resistance, and sometimes even compassion. The extensive medical bureaucracy that gradually replaced it, however, left little room for most of these things. It ran to its own iron, unbending, unthinking logic. It's no surprise that... That's, that's the last one. A historical approach helps reveal the state of things in an adolescent settler society like this one, before the advent of the medical bureaucratic apparatus, and before enormous, assured psychiatric structures came to dominate the experience and the meaning of mental illness. History allows us to see the fundamental questions about these things which had to be answered on a new stage and which now, after the fall of some of those psychiatric structures, need to be asked and answered again. If the boundaries around madness were unusually and sometimes generatively porous here, this history can hold out some of that flexibility and creativity to the present, I think. History has great power to normalise which might sound hegemonic and oppressive, like a great big blunt instrument bludgeoning the past, but history that's written from diverse places and perspectives, like the history that's represented on this panel, works to complicate boundaries, to include and normalize things which are peripheral and marginal. It reveals others in new ways. It shows how dramatically contingent our margins and boundaries have been through history. At the same time, by entering into other worlds, by visiting what has been seen as borderlands and spending real time with those who've been outcast, downcast, wretched, 
historians can help undermine boundaries that continue to be enforced now, that continue to be policed one way or another. So in this way, history can be a kind of covert assault on contemporary configurations. And these stories that are apparently about other times and places, and indeed actually are about other times and places, um, historical narratives perform effective and intellectual work. And this work can bridge cultural and chronological chasms to affect meaningful change in our present day perspectives, to counteract ignorance, neglect, discrimination, and injustice. These are just some of the things that make history dangerous and subversive and powerful. Well, impact, we were asked to talk about our, uh, think about our impact. Impact is a fraught word that some of us use to prove what a good return we make on the investment that governments and funding bodies make in our salaries. But as the planet burns and floods and sickens, and as we rush animals and plants toward their extinctions, I increasingly ask myself, I stop and ask myself, what impact do I want my work? Do I want to, um, my resources, the time that I have, the skills that I've learned? What impact do I want for them? What influence do I hope to exert in the world? It's no longer a neutral or an abstract question, I think. I'd like to see my book help to erode some of the boundaries that we throw up between sanity and insanity, between the sane and insane. We should know better than this. We do know better than this. But since finishing this book, I've continued to write about some of these boundaries, some of this marginality and peripheral uh, histories. But I've pulled them into the very recent past, into the history of planetary crisis. Twelve years ago, the historian Deepesh Chakrabarti warned that climate change called for a profound reassessment of our modern history. Because it's become apparent that much of what we've, been, we've seen as gain in the recent uh, centuries has actually brought the planet to the brink. In those 12 years, there have been countless books published on climate change, on the transition to sustainability, but not enough efforts to re-narrate the history of ourselves, our societies, and our species in light of these transformative, radical discoveries in Earth system science that should change everything we know about who we are. Not enough efforts to grapple with the trenchant resistance to these scientific revelations, or to use history to reveal the early and piercing voices of ecological and psychological warning, or to amplify visions for an alternative future, which may still be just within reach. If we proceed without history, we will be proceeding in certain respects blind and risk further damage, risk digging a deeper hole. If I've got time, I'll just say there are three reasons I think mental illness should be part of these histories that we're writing. First, because illness has been used to denigrate and marginalise concerns about planetary crisis. Just think of what's happened to Greta Thunberg as she's been advocating for change. Second, it's been used to measure the impact of natural, which are really unnatural disasters. Mental illness is a key arena for the interaction of ourselves with the planetary crisis around us. And thirdly, more than this, some have seen mental illness as one way that planetary sickness, planetary issues, express themselves. So it's not only an index of crisis or a portent of future suffering, but it's actually a series of symptoms that point towards a capacity for healing and renewal, towards a new community bent on preservation. The storytelling that we need and which I hope I can contribute to is that which helps us to understand and respond to the world as it actually is, to this ailing world as it is, has been, and could be. Thank you.